Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Cast Dice, the podcast that explores the great big wild world of tabletop gaming that we live in today. It has been said many times, mostly on this podcast, that we are in the middle of a gaming renaissance. There are just too many good games out there that we can spend our hobby time and our hobby dollars on. It can be hard to know what to play next. And that's sort of the purpose of this podcast. Now, normally this podcast talks about the games that my guests and I have either written or that we love playing or events that we've played in. Although this week, like a few others in the past, is going to be a little different. Um, now, you have heard us talk about movies in the past. You have heard us talk about uh, various fiction uh, that I have enjoyed or my guests have enjoyed. And uh, today is a very special day for me because I am going back to one of my loves. Now, it does directly uh, come back to my gaming roots, uh, and we will get to that in a minute. But we are going to be talking about a comic book. Now, we are talking about a comic book that came out in 1984. So it is a long time ago. So we will be talking our way through the book as we go. Um, but if you are interested, it is available on YouTube. There are a lot of people who read through the book and actually go through frame by frame. Um, not necessarily giving the commentary, but this might be something that you might like to listen to on your commute or when you are painting new models. Now, if I'm going to have a comic, a the origin story of arguably one of the, if not the greatest uh, merchandising franchise that originated in a comic book of all time that has never been related to Marvel or DC, it is important that we have people who know what they're talking about with comic books. Now, this is a man who, like me, does a lot of editing of podcasts, and he is single-handedly responsible for some of my favorite podcasts. Uh, he has done more than I can count, almost all of them under his grand title of The Long Box Crusade. Of course, I'm talking about the man behind the mic, DJ Christados, Pat Sampson. Welcome to Cast Ice. Wicked, 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 what's up? <laughs> How you doing, Pat? I'm doing all right. Man, Boy, it... I, have, uh, I was going to say some bad stuff here, but uh, now that you ramped me up like that, I don't know what to say. I'm, 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 I'm very grateful, and thank you very much for introducing me. Now, I have to say that I've been accused of being a prolific podcaster. Uh, doing a weekly podcast takes a lot of time, um, and I love it. It's my hobby. You put me to shame. You put out two to three times as many podcasts while managing regular co-hosts. Uh, some of who can be a handful, and no talking in the back of the class. I can hear you. Stop it. Um, <laughs> you are well, a machine, brother. No, no, no. It's not. It's all. It's all the teamwork at the Longbox Crusade. It's mm -hmm. me and the other guys. We all work on different things. Uh, everybody's learning to edit, mm -hmm. so we all help each other out. We got a good plan there. Nice, nice. Now, uh, for those who are not familiar with the Long Box Crusade, um, you do a variety of podcasts. I mean, you guys have the Transformers Chronicles. Um, Delvin is the host of that, who, of course, was on our Transformers episode a while back um, at the end of last year. Um, we also have Long Box. Uh, well, you, I was on your show yeah. for um, the uh, Saturday, more, uh, Sunday morning uh, 
Matinee theater. Saturday matinee theater. It yep. is Saturday. Gah. Um, Saturday. Yeah. Yeah. Saturday. Um, Saturday matinee theater, where you look at sort of classic television or movies. Um, and we talked about Flash Gordon, uh, which was mm-hmm. tons of fun. But you also talk about Sherlock Holmes. Um, you've done Godzilla movies. I mean, all sorts of great stuff. Uh, but of course, that isn't your main cast and rather than me trip over my tongue explaining it again talk to us about sort of the purpose of the long box crusade and sort of the the comic cast that you guys do well the long box crusade started as just a single podcast that i wanted to do i was doing it by myself just going through my collection kind of crusading through my long box Mm mm-hmm and so for some reason, somehow, I got hooked up with this crazy yard sale artist guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd probably say three or four episodes in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's like, hey, I like what you're doing. So I got a hold of him. And the rest is history. It just kind of grew from there. We got his brother involved. And then we got Delvin, his friend, involved as well, too. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of kept growing and growing. And um, I'd say without getting those guys on the long box crusade with me. I've never dreamed of it turned into what it has turned into right now. It's, it's fun. And I look forward to every week, um, you know, podcasting with these guys. Just, it's a family. I I look forward to just talking with these guys. Yeah. You guys have literally some of the best, uh, relationships and dynamics of uh, any podcast that I listen to, which is why I literally listen to everything you put out, even when I'm like, do I need to listen to an episode talking about a Sherlock Holmes uh, black and white television show from the 1930s? Sure you do. Yeah, of course I do. Well, when you guys are doing it, I have to. Yeah. Well, (laughs) that yard sale artist, he's he's a handful. Uh, Now, of course, Mm -hmm. we'd be talking about Jared Albrecht, and uh, he's... Man, he's been on that James Bond podcast uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Of course, you're also one of those, uh, but you're not the host of that show. You're the guest. Man, he's just a handful. He's been on our Big Trouble in Little China episode. He helped me talk through uh, Never Say Never Again. And man, he's just a funny guy and not just looking. I mean, hi, Jared. How are you? Mm, What's up? I'm here to correct the record of the false history that Pat just put in there mm-hmm. about the Long Box what? Crusade. Uh, I invented the Long Box Crusade about oh, six yeah, years right. ago. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's all accurate. It's all accurate, and I'm happy to be back. I've enjoyed the Never Say Never Again episode that we did together. I enjoyed Big Trouble in Little China, and uh, I'm glad to be back here uh, with, with one of my very best friends, and Pat Sampson is here as well. <laughs> oh, you guys are nasty. Uh, so for those who don't know, I'm a primary school teacher by day, and I get the feeling this episode might be a little uh, like teaching class. So uh, Jared, sit down in the back, and uh, let's see how all we right, do. All right, all right, all right. Now, unlike those two podcasts that we talked about a minute ago, um, the two movie casts, I mean, Big Trouble in Little China was a lot to digest because it was basically... It was, I've heard it reviewed as being written by someone, you know, a kid with ADHD after you load them up on sugar and let them loose in a video game arcade. And look, I, I think that's not a, a, an unfair um, review, and I love it. I think it's fantastic. Uh, it was kind of difficult to talk through, though, wasn't it, Jared? <laughs> it, it is. You don't realize kind of what a hot mess it is until you're in the middle of it, yes. but, it but in a glorious, glorious way. <laughs> 
I had so many pages. That is literally the most notes I've ever taken in preparation of any podcast. And at the end of it, I was like, I don't even know where to go next. Uh, but <laughs> so I thought to have you back on, we'll take something a little more manageable. Now, we, I did sort of start out by talking about it being the most successful uh, franchise probably in history, um, financially at least, merchandising definitely wise, um, for a, a property that began as a comic book um, that was not put out by Marvel and DC. And the fact that it can probably money-wise hold its own with some of the Marvel and DC properties speaks volumes of the fact that it was written by two guys um, sharing a house in New Hampshire in 1983. Uh, and of course, I'm talking about uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, and I am talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, uh, when I say that, a lot of people ha bring a huge amount of history with them when you start talking about TMNT. Uh, a lot of people know it from the comic book, a lot of people know it from the cartoon, a lot of people know it from the movies, and depending on sort of which era and which of those things you sort of slotted in with, your experience with these turtles will be drastically different. Now, we are all roughly the same age, but um, given that it was sort of an indie book in the 80s, not everyone sort of comes in at the same place. So I thought we'd start by saying, uh, Pat, what is your sort of prior knowledge experience with the turtles? Hmm. Well, that's a good question. Um, I would say my earlier experience with the turtles was probably the cartoon. Mm -hmm. And uh, as that was coming out, I'm like, oh, this is based on a comic book. So I kind of went back to go see um, what it was actually based off of. And mm -hmm. that's when I found the Eastman and Lard, Laird um, comic book. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, I found that really interesting because, like you had said, it's just, you know, black and white. Mm -hmm. Oh, they all have the same head, you know, they have the same, uh, headband on and mm -hmm. all that. So, um, I started collecting the figures as well too, cause nice. I wanted to get all those. Mm -hmm. Um, and here's a little something that'll kind of roll it into cast dice mm -hmm. is what I did with my characters. I painted the knives and the swords, put the silver on the blades and nice. the bow staff and all that. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not as good as painter as you, but. Mate, I, you know, just all it is is putting, uh, you know, paint on models. That is, uh, you got to start somewhere and just takes a little bit of time. And I've been doing it for way too long for uh, my level of ability. So, uh, Jared, uh, what was your turtle experience? Uh, I didn't know about the turtles until the Michael Bay produced movies came out a couple of years ago. I'm just kidding. I was going uh, when I, <laughs> I was like, I don't even know where to go with that. Um, yes, is that your equivalent of I haven't read the comic that we're about to start with? Yes, thank you. No, I uh, I have a sort of a multi-front attack of the turtles story because I was living in Germany from about eighty-seven to ninety, mm -hmm. and and things things don't. That's what I'm looking for. They don't pop up. They don't develop there like they do in the states, where mm -hmm. you'd be like, "Oh, there's a there's a cartoon," and then a couple of months later, "Well, there's some there's some figures," right. and a couple of months later, you know, "Oh, they're getting a Nintendo game." It, it's it's for computer dorks up there. It's not like a live update. It's like a batch update. Yes, like you just kind of get everything at once. Like, yes. hey, this one's been going on them in the in the states for the last six months. Boom! It all shows up at once. Mm -hmm. So 
all of a sudden this new cartoon is on AFN, the superstation, mm-hmm. the only station. There's only That's one right. American TV station. And all of a sudden it's showing this Turtles thing and everybody's just blown away like, what is this? At the same time, the Nintendo game is making its rounds. That's right. One of the one of the most hard games they've ever made. Mm-hmm. Frustrating. Yeah. At the same time, I'm seeing the comic books at the Stars and Stripes bookstore. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of all happening at once. I definitely was into the cartoon. I love the figures. I'm, I'm with Pat. I was trying my butt off to get the figures. They were hard to find in, in, in Germany. They were hard to keep in stock, so it was hard to get them. And uh, playing the video game, and I really got into that Archie series. Like, I, I was very, and still am to this day somewhat, very into the Archie series. And then it wasn't until I probably got back to the States. And I, I was probably in, I don't know, 15 or 16 in high school by the time I found out there was Turtles before, you know, right. the cartoon. Yeah. And and then I was like, oh, I'm going to go back and read that. And I'm like, this is incredibly weird. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it is really hard to go back, except for this initial issue that we're going to talk about tonight. So yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it is It is a little strange because um, if you read the original batch of comics, the original sort of run of the first 15, um, a lot of the characters that you know and love if you watched the cartoon or you collected the toys or you even watched a lot of the movies, um, they are completely different. It's basically they took the character's appearance and then they cut and pasted it into the cartoon and rewrote them completely. Um, the, the Krang, the the brain alien in the robot body that was sort of the sort of the head of the bad guys um, when he wasn't battling with Shredder to, for that role. It's the Destro Cobra Commander sort of relationship there, but um, th- he was actually a generic alien, and there was a race of aliens um, called the TCRI. Well, they had another name, but they went by that acronym uh, on Earth. And that will come up later, but we don't actually see them today. Um, likewise, Baxter Stockman um, and April O'Neil, I mean, even people still think of April as the reporter um, because that's what she is in most of the turtle media. Uh, she's actually Baxter Stockman's uh, uh, scientific assistant or co-worker, um, and he's a robot programmer. And so you have this, and that's an issue too. So there's this weird sort of alternate reality between the original comics and what most people consider Turtle canon, um, which I always found really jarring and weird. Now, like you, Jared, I grew up overseas, um, and I was in Japan between 87 and 90. Um, and I, they, it, Turtle um, mania didn't really reach Japan until after I had left. Um, and so I didn't see it unless I came back to the States. Um, but which is why, but I knew it before I left. I um, mean, the reason I know it is the very first um, marketing franchising that they did for the comic was a role playing game. And the role playing game was a game uh, my friend and I uh, picked up and played. My friend who introduced me to gaming in general, Jason, also collected comics uh, and showed me my first long box. And was very, um, he was into the comics. He had found some of the reprints of the first couple issues um, and loved the, the idea of it. And he was telling me about the, you know, these Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and the, just the name itself. I mean, that has, <laughs> that's a very 80s concept. If you think about it now, you're like, oh, sure, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. But take those words apart and then imagine you've never heard them 
together. It's like, you know, um, middle-aged zombie. I mean, you can't even put words like that together and have the same effect. It was just so radical and so different. Um, so when he threw this role-playing game at me, um, I thought it was cool. But one of the first things that grabbed me was that it was filled with this fantastic art. And turns out almost all the art in it is literally from the first issue of this comic book. And it's just mm-hmm. interspaced throughout mm-hmm. the game. Uh, sorry, throughout the game book, um, but there's a mini book in it in which um, the turtles w- move in with April, which isn't till much later in the series, and they are going to a Halloween party, and um, you know th- it all goes wrong, and the turtles get um, you know their outfits shredded. Not even little forewarning there, um, and then they end up going to the costume party later just as themselves, and it, you know, it, it tells you a lot about how the turtles have changed when when they get there, one of them turns to a guest and says, hey, you got a beer? Um, and it, it's not the turtles we expect, you know, no cowabunga, no pizza, no nothing, um, because Eastman and Laird were massive fans of Frank Miller, and so you get, you know, they try and take this weird concept that no one else has heard, of teenage mutant ninja turtles and jamming it into this ultra dark that the comic books were sort of the comic books are going through at that point in time um and so it's a dark book it's it's a violent book but you also have cutesy little ninja turtles running around stabbing people with swords and sides uh, sorry and uh, sigh and so it's it's a very it's Looking back at it now, it's a strange juxtaposition. Um, but without it, we wouldn't have, you know, the the harmless, um, quote unquote, violence of the cartoon, where you know a lot of blunt force trauma rather than stabby, stabby, cutty, cutty. If that makes sense. Well, gentlemen, I guess that just leaves us to talk about one big question before we get stuck in. And it's one of those things that uh, occasionally you see people talk about when it's like a personality test. Who? is your favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, and why? Jared, what do you think? I think I feel bad for Pat because he's heard me answer this question a couple times, but (laughs) he's going to hear it one more time. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Pat, who's my favorite turtle and why? Uh, Is it Leonardo? Leonardo is correct. Because he was a leader? Right. He is a leader leader. of his peers. I teach leadership in my day job, mm-hmm. and leadership of your peers is the hardest leadership to do. And Leonardo does it, and nobody else wants to do it. Raphael likes to complain about it, yep. but it's a job that nobody wants, but he sucks it up, and he does it, and he does it pretty well. So that is why I love Leonardo, and I will pass the pipe to Pat. Pat, who do you well, like? I'm going to say Leo, too, but I don't like him because he's a leader. I just like him because he's got the cool two swords, and I always yes. saw it. Somebody with two swords like that is really cool. Yeah. Whenever I see kind of a ninja kind of a guy like that, it, I like that. You know, that's why I like uh, Yosaki Jimbo as well, too, is because mm-hmm. he's, you know, he's the sword play. That's Rue. right. Sword, lightsaber, you know. Love it. Love it. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I'm going to be really boring. Uh, I'm going to say Leonardo, too. Um, <laughs> One of the three Leos. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with that, though, and my wife, if she ever listens to this, which she won't, um, will roll her eyes because she knows that I have a massive uh, Steve Rogers uh, fascination. I'm a massive Captain America fan. Massive Captain America fan. And um, Leo sort of has that, you know, 
not nice guy, but do the right thing, strong moral code mm-hmm. and compass that I uh, I really enjoyed uh, as a kid. Um, I really liked that uh, in my comic characters. And so I love that about him. And I especially liked what they did with the characters um, eventually in the series. And I, a little bit of spoilers here. Um, when they eventually do bring the Shredder back um, and the Turtles are defeated and they move to Northampton, Massachusetts to sort of lick their wounds and recoup, um, and the team is shattered and Leo, you know, gets really badly hurt in the process. Um, and it's his sort of, you know, uh, finding his way and then, you know, finding that ability to lead the turtles and bring them back. Um, I think really cemented my love for that character. Um, I, I didn't find, I know lots of kids love Mikey, um, but the Mikey of the early comic books loved beer um, and didn't love pizza. And so they sort of replaced the love for one with the other one. And so as a kid, I was like, yeah, the nunchucks are cool, but eh, eh. Um, And Donatello, it took him a long time to sort of find his personality in the book. And so by the time um, he has his own personality, which I really do like, um, he's actually a really cool character later on. Um, to start with, he's very bland, um, and he sort of, you know, is in the back of the team defending often and not actually, you know, being out there, and he doesn't get a lot of solo work until later. So um, I do love that Leo takes on a Shredder and an entire clan uh, attack group at one point in the comic book, and that's why he um, is so badly hurt. And I just thought that particular comic is one of my favorite arcs of this series and so leo is an integral part of that anyway but you know who didn't like leo best the creators yeah um (laughs) well there you go um eastman and laird didn't their favorite was raf um which is why Raphael has the most personality (laughs) that's why raf has the most personality right outside the gate now it was there's many criticisms boy of yeah exactly of the book when it first started um, because it was a black and white book, and the only color you got was on the covers. And the turtles were all green, and they all had red uh, bandanas. And so one of the criticisms of the early books was it's sometimes hard to tell which turtles which if they throw their weapons away, which occasionally happens. Um, but Raph was the one that always had the personality. He was, you know, uh, impatient. He was angry. He had that Wolverine antisocial... Uh, feel to him, um, and that is their love of Raph is why when the turtles eventually got different colored bandanas, why he kept the original red. Um, all the other turtles got shifted, um, and that was when they took it to uh, the toy. F- you know, they sold it to the toy companies. The toy companies went, "Yeah, we need to change this because once a kid loses the weapons, how are you going to know which one's which?" And so they actually changed their bandana colors then, um, and that is when. Um, yeah, Raph got to be the original turtle. But uh, I think that segues nicely into uh, the comic itself. And on that note, let's get into the actual comic itself. Now, I, of course, am talking about the original Mirage comic uh, published in 1984 in May and is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number one. Are you guys ready, Jared? I did not read it. <sighs> I, we're we're not reading the Archie one. That I, I did read. I hate you guys. Same here. 
Yeah, you told it, me dude. to read Archie number and one. And then I followed it. Well, I would thought it was the IDW one. <sighs> IDW, yeah. IDW, like G.I. Joe, um, publishes a lot oh. of these. So, Are we going to talk about Turtles in Time, the Super NES game at all? Oh, oh yeah, that was awesome. <sighs> it's a fun show. I'm dying a little bit inside <laughs> right here. <laughs> All right. Yes, we read the comic. We read it. All right, all right. Here we go. Here we go. Ah, uh, so uh, I think the best way to start is by reading the first paragraph. My name is Leonardo. We and made that's a... how they should all start. Exactly. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's gonna be one of those. Wait, shows. You're still talking. Are you talking about the Archie one? <laughs> the, the bit is over, Pat. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh... We made a wrong turn somewhere. Now we're caught, our backs to the wall, in this trash-strewn alley. Barring the way, our, uh, out, barring the way out are 15 members of the Purple Dragons, the toughest street gang on the east side. The only way they'll let us out of here is if we're dead. So it starts with the turtles backed into an alley. Uh, surrounded by hardened street thugs, uh, and they have to fight their way out. Um, now, in this, uh, we get very first thing. In the second paragraph, uh, of course, is being told from Leonardo's point of view. The very In the second paragraph, the uh, second sentence is talking about, you know, they're describing all the characters, and the only one that gets a personality is Raph. And he's talking about, you know, his body quivering with the sense of energy and, you know, basically talking about him being a rage monster from the very start. Meanwhile, the rest of the turtles are just trained and ready. Um, now, if you read through the first couple of pages, there is a lot of exposition. Um, and in the middle, it gets a little Chris Claremont heavy with the amount of text that is there. Um, but I suppose if you're introducing, you know, this weird notion of literally mutant turtles attacking people, you know, as ninjas, you got to explain it somehow. Um, but they do cut it nicely in the fight with fantastic action scenes. Um, but of course, all of that exposition that's written in is very Frank Miller uh, heavy. Um, now, I'm not a big Miller fan, but um, did you guys, um, do you guys, did you have that when you were reading it? Did you think, oh, wow, this is a lot like Frank Miller? Or now that you've read it, does that make sense to you? Pat? Um, I think now that you've mentioned it, it makes a little more sense to me on that part of it. Mm -hmm. Jared? I um, The only really thing that keyed me into the love of Frank Miller, especially in that time in the 80s, was their very obvious nod to the Daredevil origin. Yes. Yeah. Which that's what I was going to mention. Aside yeah. from that, I did. I actually didn't know until we recorded this episode tonight that they were huge Frank Miller fans. But mm -hmm. now that you say it, I see it, and the Daredevil thing connection really clicks. Yeah, especially, and we'll get to that in their origin story in a second. I'm sorry, I skipped ahead. I'll no, no, not at all. That Everybody you're completely right. When we get there. Yes. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's Spoilers. what I was going to talk about. Well, we can all talk oh, about. Right. It. I'm sure there's a lot to talk about. Thanks with... for inviting me to the show, Pat. <laughs> yep. You're welcome. Yeah. There you go. That's right. I see you guys later. Have a good yeah. night. <laughs> now, <laughs> got you again, Pat. 
Now, uh, you guys are big comic fans. Now, uh, this book has a very distinctive style. There is a lot of action, and um, you know, you get lots of text with some people standing around talking, and then you have page upon page um, and giant splash pages of nothing but you know, martial art action, firing of guns, the whole thing. And you get a lot of that, especially right off the bat. You get some text, and then you just get pages of action with very few words. Um, now, what's interesting about this style, and they had a very distinct style, especially to start with, was um, Eastman and Laird, uh, they, had, they started Mirage Studios. Now, Mirage Studios was named that because it was technically, um, or they used to laughingly say, their studio was a Mirage. It didn't actually exist. It was the two of them sharing a house um, with uh, one of their wives, and um, they would sit in their converted living room, which is their studio, and then just bounce ideas back and forth. And uh, in doing so, um, that bouncing of ideas back and forth became sort of a hallmark for the way that they worked. And they took turns drawing and inking. Now, unlike a lot of books where you have, and I, I hear you guys talk about on your comic podcast, where you have one person who draws or a couple people that draw rarely, and then you have an inker, uh, and then you have a letterer, these guys literally did it all. Um, and they would literally mix up their work as they went. So they would half um, draw a page, and then they'd hand it to the other guy to finish it, and when he was doing it, the other guy would then ink, and then he'd hand it back, and the other guy would finish. So literally, outside of this first book, the only page that was entirely drawn by one person was page 13. Um, otherwise, the entire book is literally every panel is drawn interchangeably between the two of them. Now, am I wrong in saying that is really out there? Like, that is not something that's commonly done in the comic book verse. Jared, you're an artist. Can you imagine doing that? First, I've heard of it. Uh, but, man, it worked for them. It gave them a super unique style. Mm -hmm. And I want to key in on one thing you mentioned there that doesn't get enough, get enough love. These guys are really good letterers. Yes. Lettering is not easy, and they did a really good... Usually you can tell when like an indie comic guy lettered mm -hmm. his own book because you're like, yeah, I can tell he lettered it himself. <laughs> yes. Know? But these guys, hats off to the lettering. I know that probably doesn't come up a lot, but they did a great job. And Pat, what'd you think, man? Hold on. Before Pat gets in, I need to quickly talk about one thing with the lettering. One thing that um, is funny, it's it's from the very first book, and it runs through the entire original comic series, is um, the, the letterer, and I believe it was Eastman? Now I'm getting them mixed up. The one, the one of them that did the lettering is also a phenomenally bad speller. And this is way prior to technology being there to help you spell things. And so mm. um, they were constantly, there was constant mistakes that had to be fixed. But one of the few that made it in uh, misspellings um, that became canon was um, whoever lettered misspelled Michelangelo's name. And so uh, Michelangelo was misspelled for the entire run of the original books. If you compare the <laughs> turtle to the actual artist that he's named after, um, he's spelled differently. I did not know that. Yeah, it was. It's. A, it was. They. They were like, oh, well, we need to be consistent now. And so he was misspelled the entire way through. And I thought that was super fascinating. But because it was an indie book, they were like, well, shrug. You're gonna. What are you gonna do? Come <laughs> correct us. 
<laughs> tell us we're wrong. But you're right. His I absolutely love his lettering style. But yeah, he's a terrible speller. Um, and yeah, that, that, yeah, there you go. Pat, uh, what did you think? I thought it was kind of interesting learning, like you said, that they both took turns kind of drawing it back and forth, except for page 13. Mm-hmm. And 13, um, I'm, if I'm yeah. looking at it right, is the, well, I don't want to jump ahead here, but yeah. you can kind of tell it in his face, in that face is there. So the 13, we're all looking at different versions of this. Um, the original page 13 is, um, and it may not match the one you're reading, is the splash page of the cityscape. Um, oh, so it's okay. lit- the I'm only thing that's page. in there is a picture of New York City, um, you know, with streetlights at night, and, mm-hmm. and it says at the top, okay. into the night. And that was entirely written by or drawn by uh, one person. Um, literally everything okay. that had a character was done the other way. And that was because um, the guy who drew it really wanted to have that page exist. And the guy who didn't argued with him and said, no, we, we don't have the page count for that. We definitely don't need a splash page showing that. No, no, no. And then he, the other guy drew it, and they went, okay, maybe we do. And they put it in. Um, but yeah, it was very, again, that it really shows the sort of organic relationship that the two of them had. Um, and for a while they stopped talking, um, once turtles got big and they weren't working together. And so it makes sense that, um, you know, you can see even from the earliest days that their relationship wasn't always, uh, roses and chocolate, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love their style, and it, it definitely evolves over the, the first run of comics as they find their sea legs, and they you know the turtles get more muscular, and they get a little tougher looking. Um, if you look at the original drawing of the original turtles, they look, um, as in the, the ones they sort of drew to make each other laugh before they decided to write a book, um, they were sort of, they had these sort of old man paunch and... Um, they, they looked very not muscular, um, and though they look far more able to be martial artists in this book, um, they definitely do not have their characteristic, characteristic muscular physique until later. Um, so yeah, it is nice to go back to the very first issue and look at the evolution, especially given, um, as we're talking about, that they sort of did it together. It is also why the turtles look different in certain parts of the book than others um, because they the book was not drawn sequentially and um, parts of the book were drawn by different people and so sometimes the turtles faces look particularly beaky and other times uh, they don't they look far more rounded and muscular so yeah it, it is an, it is very interesting to go back to this book but um, yeah anything else you guys want to add to that or shall we get to what happens next Turtle power. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, so uh, the, the clearly the turtles are victorious. Um, they beat all fifteen members of the street gang, even though they pull out guns. Um, and so they sort of they prove themselves. And so they end up going into the sewers, and they meet their mentor, uh, Splinter. Now they, when I say meet, they just meet up with. Um, and Splinter, they they declare their victory. Uh, and Splinter says, ah, my sons, you're at the top of your ability level. Um, you can now 
fulfill your destiny and then basically goes on about his long uh long-term revenge plot against uh his his master's rival but <clears throat> that that doesn't sound very heroic um so here we are with the turtles backstory splinter uh says goes into his history and in the process gets into the turtles history and it, it is this is where i was talking is almost a chris claremont amount of words it is just word upon word upon word upon word and it is a lot of text um to talk through and it is it's interesting and hard to summarize in that it's so similar to and very different from sort of the turtle history that if you are sort of used to the traditional turtle verse um, it's very different. So, I mean, the story is very similar in that it starts with Splinter is the rat um, who was the pet of uh, his master, who was a uh, ninja warrior. Now, in this version, he is a ninja in the Foot Clan, um, and his name is Hamato Yoshi. Um, and he is sort of um, the up-and-coming... Um, super talented ninja in the clan. He's very, um, very talented, knows his stuff. Um, and the rat um, watches his train, watches him train, and sort of mimics his actions in his cage. And basically, as a plain rat, learns ninjutsu. Um, now, they don't ever explain that. Um, <laughs> but they I, did the same thing in the movie, though. That's That made its way into the movie. It did. It did um, with that awful puppet. Um, but Wait, if, that was a puppet? If if we're talking the like 1990s, uh, mm -hmm. Corey Feld, yeah, there's there was some sort of like little rat puppet doing its like martial arts I in the cage. That was a trained rat this whole time. Yeah, huh. no, no. It makes me wonder if my dog can paint toy soldiers. Uh, probably better than <laughs> I can. But yeah, because uh, he sits and watches me. Anyway, um, now his main rival in the clan, uh, in every aspect, is a guy named Oroku Nagi. Now, a lot of people immediately think I'm saying that wrong because Oroku Saki is a guy who becomes the Shredder. No, this is Oroku Nagi, different guy, completely different dude. Um, and one of the main areas that these guys are competing in is for the love of a beautiful woman, Tseng Shan. Now, why the entire Turtleverse is in Japanese and then they throw in the love interest with a Chinese name? I don't know, um, And but hey... Um, now it's the 80s and there was no internet to be able to look up the difference yeah which is why the turtles interestingly it's it's one of the reasons why and the artists don't agree on why the turtles have um the reason why they have the the painters names but one of them says it was because they couldn't figure out um lots of credible sounding uh, asian names um but then the other one says but of course we did we named all the other characters so anyway um so they both love Tseng Shen, but she falls in love for Hamato Yoshi. Um, Nagi becomes incredibly jealous and um, confronts Tseng Shen and says, uh, you have to love me. Um, you must leave the other guy. It, it's just what has to happen. Uh, and when she refuses, um, he attacks her, uh, savagely beating her. And it, it, at this point, enter um, Hamato Yoshi. Now, it says that he sees red, uh, goes into a red haze, and the very next frame is literally just his fists, um, and they're covered in blood, and it says, when it cleared, Nagi was no more. Now, this book is incredibly bloody and dark. 
um, when the turtles were beating up the street thugs or beating the street thugs earlier, I mean, there was um, there were swords going through guys. Uh, it's it's grim. Um, so this is very dark for um, what would you know what would become such a, a popular kid show um, that you know the Splinter's sensei. Uh, beats his uh, rival to death because he, you know, was attacking his love interest. Uh, very dark. Now, um, that, he only has, Hamato Yoshi apparently only has two options at that point, either commit suicide and try and find honor in the next life, or um, to flee. And so he and Sang Shen flee to New York City, where he opens a martial arts dojo. Now, before I get into where the story goes from there, Gents, do you uh, have anything you want to add to that? I just want to add, you're right, this is a lot different than the cartoon. You do have that little more gore, that action, mm -hmm. just that grittiness, I guess, to this is kind of fascinating on the contrast to, you know, how they really made their money on this. Yeah, right. It's, but it's, it's interesting. I mean, I... You know, which one do you like? It's this is really good, you know, story so far. It is. It is fantastically well written. I mean, they spent five months writing this um, and making this. And uh, I mean, I've heard people uh, when researching this show talk about how the art in it and some of the storytelling is very amateur. Well, yeah, it is. This was a completely independent comic book put out by two amateurs, and they didn't find their style until they were going along. That said, uh, the story this story is very engaging, and the way it's written is really entertaining. Um, and as a kid, I was riveted when I read this for the first time, mm -hmm. and I sure. just remember how good it was, uh, and it made me want to read more and more and more of this. Um, so yeah, and and even though you know this part gets to be somewhat wordy, when I started reading it for this reread, I was like, okay. You know, 40 pages, oh, man, yeah. Jared, you know how we like 40-page comic books. Mm -hmm. With a yeah. lot of words, yeah. We don't yeah, name no names. It's a size comic right there. Mm -hmm. yeah. But going through it, it went by really quick. It did. Because, like, their pacing and how they set it all up and just the pages after pages of action, you know, before, in the middle and all that. Agreed. Yeah, well put, Pratt, um, because I... I reread this five or six times in the last 48 hours, and each and every time, I mean, it's not a short book. There's a lot of word count to it, and it was an easy read. I kept rereading it. It's engaging each and every time I went back to it, uh, and yeah, it's, it's just really well done. Um, Jared, what do you think? Exactly. Uh, I was going to make that same point that Pat did. It is a breezy read, even though it's got a heavy page count. I think it's well-paced. Uh, even that dense story part uh, still read pretty quick. So, yeah, no complaints at all. Nice. Well, there are consequences for uh, Hamato Yoshi, uh, and that is in the form of a seven-year-old, uh, seven-year-old younger brother of um, Oroku Nagi, who is, of course, Oroku Saki. Um, now, he grows up and he vows vengeance uh, for his brother. And the Foot Clan sort of take advantage of this and sort of mold him into being the ultimate warrior. And he laps it up. He becomes sort of the ultimate ninja. And in the process, um, when he sort of graduates and becomes sort of the master of all, 
um, they say, hey, we're opening a, a chapter, almost like a franchise, of uh, ninjas in New York City. Uh, we want you to go head it. So he doesn't take over the clan over, uh, overall. He just takes over sort of the New York branch. And he starts it from scratch. Um, and a year later, it says that um, they quickly become a force to be reckoned with. Um, and they are involved in all sorts of criminal criminal activities, drug, uh, drug smuggling, arms running, um, and, of course, their speciality, which is assassination. Um, and it's after this year that... Um, Orokusaki, now known as the Shredder, um, vows vengeance, is, sort of acts upon his vengeance, um, hunts down um, Hamato Yoshi, and does the worst he can do to him, which is um, ambushes Sang Chen, again, kills her with his bare hands and his. Um, his new shredder suit, which is sort of shown in a shadow, but we can see the jagged parts and we know who it is from for later. Um, and then waits until Hamato Yoshi comes home and attacks him after he's seen his, um, his dead wife. And again, super grim. Um, but it is interesting, though, that once that happens, you see Hamato Yoshi's face, you see his anguish, you hear the oh no, and then the Shredder attacks, but then that's all of the battle you get. Um, and the very next page is they're showing Splinter in the sewers. Um, and he says, you know, he, his cage was broken open during the fight. Um, and he, he goes to live like a common rat, living in the sewers, eating garbage. And he does that for a couple of years until the fateful day when Daredevil is made. Anyway, um, no, um, when a blind man is walking along and almost gets hit by a truck. Now, a young man, otherwise known as Matt Murdock, um, dives and tackles the guy out of the way, and the truck veers. And in the process, a canister rolls off the top of the truck, hits the young man near his eyes, uh, hence the Daredevil um, origin story, um, rolls, bounces a few times, hits a child holding a glass aquarium, which shatters, um, dumping four baby turtles into the sewer, and the canister falls in after them, breaks open, and spreads... Uh, this weird glowing ooze all over the baby turtles, um, and uh, Splinter follows them into the sewer, collects them into a coffee can, um, try, takes them home, cleans them off the best he can, meanwhile getting the green ooze all over himself. And that is where I will pause, because um, I may have just ruined everything you guys were going to say, um, but Pat, did you want to talk about um, the Daredevil link here? Because... Um, these guys were big fans, and they wanted to have that nod in there. No, I, I yeah, I think you kind of said it all right there. That they were definitely this is definitely a Daredevil influence. This is his mm -hmm. origin story, but becomes the Turtles' story, which is kind of kind of cool in, in that in itself. You know, I think I think I kind of like that, knowing that was happening a little bit more. You, you can get into it, the story of it, a Absolutely. lot better. Yeah, it's funny. I read these for years, um, and I also read Daredevil, and it wasn't until much later that I actually put the two and two together and went, oh, of course. Yeah. How did I not see that? 
Um, it and, reminds me a lot of the original, another indie comic book out of New England, The Tick. Um, and I believe mm-hmm. it's the very first issue of The Tick. He runs into Superman and annoys him to death because he just tries to follow him around and he keeps pointing out that he's Superman and in his Clark Kent outfit um, and keep, you know, Superman eventually loses his, you know, loses his temper at him and tries to hurt him a bunch of times. But because the, the tick superpowers nigh invulnerability, the tick just walks it off and he gets super mad. But it's, um, it's that, you know, early books nodding to their influences. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I like um, how the the ninja clan, the, the foot clan, which is the on the daredevil side, the mm-hmm. hand. Yes, um, nice. I like I like how the Foot Clan decided to you know kind of branch out and you know offered um, Shredder or I'm gonna say his name Shredder but offered Shredder mm-hmm. uh, you know part of this um, you know this three sided triangle scheme that they're working on here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it I mean it is very 80s though, isn't it? Ninjas franchises. Um, mm-hmm. it, it just it. it it feels very 80s. Um, Jared, what do you think? I didn't read it. Jared! <laughs> no, I'm with you guys, 100%. Nice. I, my favorite thing about the um, the whole Daredevil connection is it makes an awesome comic book trivia question. It does. To ask your nerd friends. Mm-hmm. It has come up once or twice uh, at a, a drunken night at a pub um, with nerds, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it's funny who knows it and who doesn't. It's always one of those uh, funny tidbits. Um, I, I do love though um, that they do sort of. This is sort of a one-off. Uh, I mean, clearly they're all the nods to Miller and Daredevil, but they had the foresight to write TCRI on the canister. Um, now this original book was. A one-off. It was never meant to be a series. It wasn't until they were on their fourth reprint of the first book that they kept paying out of their their pocket um, and kept selling out of that. You know, comic store owners started calling them, saying, "All right, I, I we're selling through these like hotcakes. When are we getting the second episode, second issue?" Then they went, "Oh, God, we probably need a second issue." Which is why the first and second issues are complete one shots. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's fascinating that they had the foresight, even though they knew it was gonna. They were well, they were planning it to be a foresight, sorry, a, a one shot. That they were putting those four letters on the side of the canister. I, I wonder how much that played into um, the aliens later being called TCRI aliens um, later in the series. But yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, well. As we can see, the ooze has an influence because the turtles start to grow, both in intelligence and in size. Um, And at the same time, uh, Splinter does too. Now, he doesn't grow as much because he didn't get as much of the ooze on him. Um, And there is that question of, well, how does he get to be so smart? Um, Maybe he was cleverer to start with. Um, I guess if you're a plain rat and you learn ninjutsu without the ooze, then uh, maybe you don't need a whole lot of ooze to be wicked smart. But um, there you go. But you have the turtles, and then one day the turtles start to speak. Uh, and their first word, of course, is splinter, which makes me wonder who was calling him splinter. But, you know, going to leave that plot hole aside. Um, and pretty soon they were talking and walking. And uh, a couple of years after that, splinter starts to train them. And um, using a battered copy of a book of Renaissance art that he fished out of the storm drain, he chose names for each of the turtles. 
You have Leonardo, the misspelled Michelangelo, Donatello, and Raphael. And um, at this point, he tells them that they must go and kill the Shredder, Um, which, again, is very different than what you would get from the very, you know, G.I. Joe shooting at each other, not hitting anything, um, and occasionally vehicles blowing up, and when they do, people jump out with parachutes that you get from the cartoons. Um, this is, you know, the very first issue, Splinter's one thing that he wants his students to do is to hunt down and kill his villain. Um, so yeah, very different story arc. For this being, I think this is a good halfway point here. Like if this Mm. was just the end of the comic here, yeah, I'd be like, oh man, you got to give me more. Yeah. Right. On this. And you know, it ends with that nice four panel of, you know, Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, and and Raphael, and just, it's like, you got that origin story, now let's get into the action, and tune in next time, would be a great spot. And the next page has a giant splash page, which you could almost imagine would have the header at the top, right? Mm -hmm. That's a really good point, Pat. I had never even realized that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I wonder if this was originally supposed to be two books, or they just decided to have it as one big one. That yeah, I, I don't know. I, I find I just kind of find that in, interesting. You know, is this chapter one, and this would be like chapter two? Mm-hmm. Well, this second part of the book starts with um, a splash page of Raphael sort of doing an almost Spider-Man pose of crouching over the corner of a building with the cityscape in the background, um, and it's saying that how much he loves the night air and how he hates being in the dank, dark underground. Um, and his, he says that his brothers don't seem to mind it, but he does. And again, this is Raphael getting his own moment in the sun when none of the other turtles get it. Clearly, he is the favorite of the creators. Um, and you get him jumping from uh, building top to building top and sneaking up on a foot stronghold. Um, he ambushes a couple of guards. He's been sent to send a message. Uh, and he, you know, the the... The guards pull out swords to stop him, uh, and they say, of course, they're armed, of course, but that's okay. I am too. And he sort of disembowels them with his sigh. And then another, uh, I guess, a higher quality guard, sort of the guard sergeant comes at him with a sword and um, demands, are you you a ninja? And uh, in the only cringeworthy moment in the book, in my opinion, he he doesn't say anything back but turtle. And um, they sort of have that moment where they cross paths. They, they have that samurai moment where they go past each other. And then, of course, Raphael's the only one left standing. The other guy falls and dies. And all the while, we have... Um, now, what's interesting is here, you have uh, a meeting going on where Orokusaki is in regular clothes. He's wearing a necktie and sort of slacks. And he's talking to some businessmen. And he's basically laying down his protection racket. And he's selling, he's basically saying, you need to pay me. I'm selling you protection. Um, This needs to happen. Um, What's interesting is, you know, you have him not in his traditional shredder outfit that you sort of, he's earned his costume that we saw earlier in the issue and we'll definitely see later. He's in everyday clothes. Now that is... It's a little out there. I mean, um, how many times do you read a comic book or a, a movie or see a television show where they keep the character intentionally in the same outfit so that there isn't confusion? Um, again, I don't think I think 
especially for it being the first issue that that he does get this sort of moment in plain clothes. Am I the only one that finds that jarring, um, Jared? Yes, you are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Uh, <laughs> um, no, you know what? It, I, I joke, but I guess, you know, I didn't really notice it until you said it, but I guess I was just kind of breezing through the book. Mm. So I never felt jarred. Uh, but maybe I was just maybe I was just reading too fast because, you know, I really did read this about an hour before the show. <laughs> uh, but, you know, who's more familiar with it than me? Patrick, Pat. was it jarring for you, sir? What? I was I was on mute. Yeah, it's funny. It's a funny <laughs> joke. Um, no, not at all. OK. You okay, know, so I've only just Patrick read this about. Yeah, I only just read this about 20 minutes before getting on the show, so. <laughs> he, he immediately regrets booking the two of us. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you no, mean? I, I, yeah, I, I don't find it jarring at all. I think it's, yeah, you know, adds some character to it. Absolutely. I don't, I, jarring maybe isn't the right word. Um, I guess my wife and I were talking about this the other night. We were watching a bad uh, circa early thousands a uh, detective television show that may have involved um, some CSI lettering in the title um, while we were making dinner. And they had one of the police officers uh, who was a secondary character who was only in one episode, but he was wearing the exact same horrifically, you know, glow in the dark yellow shirt and almost matching necktie for a story arc that supposedly took place over the course of a week. And you're going, don't, don't you change clothes? Um, and to have, I guess, this character have that, I guess that's why it jumps out at me. Anyway, um, I will continue. Uh, the guys who um, the, the Shredder is selling his uh, protection services to say, oh, if you can't protect yourself, you can't protect us, and they storm out. Um, which infuriates the Shredder, but nothing more than uh, the note that's attached to the side that is thrown in the window at him, um, which says, you have dishonored the name of your family by murdering uh, Hamato Yoshi, and he, um, he is challenged to a duel. And so uh, the Turtles uh, line up for the last act of the book, where we have the Turtles uh, sneaking up to a rooftop and calling the Shredder out. Gents, before we get into the last act, um, Jared, anything that uh, jumped out at you from that last section? I like the uh, the sneaky Bond style, if you will, the, right. the showing of the stealthy ninja skills by Raph mm -hmm. uh, right up until he met the first you know two people he ran into and killed them. Uh, <laughs> but up until then, yes. I, I kind of like that sort of sneaky late night creeping through the complex type of thing. And I thought they built the suspense well. Yeah. Well, they're ninjas too, man. You're right. You're yeah. right. Yep. Pat, what did you you're in England oh, yeah. because they were the teenage mutant hero turtles. What? Were they? Yeah. True story. They didn't want to, there's something about ninja. They didn't like, like it was too violent. Yeah. Check it out sometime. And in England, they were the teenage mutant hero turtles. Oh, that's fascinating. I did not know that. Oh, that's funny. Woo! I brought something to the podcast. Yeah! Woo! -hoo. <laughs> Pat, what'd you think? I agree with Jared. Uh, just the Raphael kind of sneaking around his own, like, secret mission there, mm -hmm. I thought it was really cool. Although he loses a sigh. Hopefully he's got more of those in stock. Yeah, you would think so, because he's got another one in a couple pages. But yeah, you know, yeah. hanging out in the sewers, I guess they're just making them down there. Or they have a whole crate of them, because he's just throwing mm -hmm. them away. 
Yep, and I like uh, that Treader's still trying to work on his pyramid scheme here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Building up his empire little by little. But uh, he clearly does not like being challenged because um, as the turtles get to uh, the, the, the rooftop and call the Shredder out, you have the Shredder overlooking them from a rooftop just in the exact same Spider-Man pose that Raphael was on a couple pages before and is saying, who are these fools? And, um, you know, we get some thought exposition bubbles about, um, you know, who could be coming after him after all this time? Because it's been 15 years since he's killed uh, Hamato Yoshi. But then um, he shows up. The turtles uh, are there. And uh, you get some awesome standing on the edge of a rooftop in a weird um, crouched over pose that, you know, no villain should stand in for very long. Um, but then he calls the foot out and the foot army descends. And we get an epic Battle now. There is a two-page splash page that has fantastic uh, uh, violence going on between the turtle and the um, and the foot ninjas. Uh, you have it is literally all the turtles surrounded by foot ninjas, and it's just them battling their way out. And we get a ton of excellent action going on. Uh, and then you know they they. They beat the the foot, and then they are victorious. They're still standing, uh, and they turn to face the Shredder, who has not been engaged so far. And um, you know they call out, "Your your ninja have fallen, Shredder!" And he says, "Yes, they were my best men, but I see they've left the, left their mark." And the turtles are, if and then it zooms in, and you get to see that they are bloodied. They are all cut. They're all bleeding. It is they are all hurt in one way or another, and he challenges them. He calls them out, and you get that that Raph again charging out ahead of his brothers. And the Shredder says, "You can take me on one by one or all together. It doesn't matter." And Raph jumps in and immediately gets uh, absolutely laid out. Um, he's then followed by Donatello, who uh, is again beaten up. Um, you have all the turtles one by one go through, and though Leo is able to cut them across the chest, um, the turtles are definitely not winning that battle. Um, but then you have Leo pulling his first proper leadership moment, and he says, Turtle brothers, back up. And so they throw shuriken, they throw throwing knives. Um, <laughs> Raphael throws a size again. I guess he's got more. Uh, and then, yeah, you just have this battle going on um, that starts at range and then eventually ends with um, Leonardo getting in and impaling the Shredder on his sword um, after his armor has been sort of cut off him by the battle. And, um, he's, you know, the Turtles then say, now you're beaten. And we have... Um, you know, some great hero villain exposition. And Leo hands over his sword and says, there's only one chance to redeem your honor, and that's to take the sword and commit suicide, of which the Shredder says, never, and pulls out a thermite grenade and says, I will take you with me, arms it. But then you have Donatello in sort of his action moment of the book, um, throwing his staff, hitting the Shredder in the face and knocking him off the rooftop where he falls with the thermite grenade and blows up, which ends the Shredder. Um, now the Turtles say they're tired and exhausted, and they go, but they say their honor, um, the, their, the honor of their master has been avenged, um, and so they go to leave, and they find some uh, ripped up 
um, or should I say shredded armor of the shredder, which is what it's written in the book, on the ground. Um, and that is clearly proof that he has died, and they disappear into the shadows. And that is the end of the first book. Um, now, before I ask you gentlemen for your reactions, um, they, they, again, this was written as a one-off, but one of the things that they, the authors talked about when they were writing this book was if they ever continued the story arc, one of the things they wanted was if somebody died, they'd stay dead. It wouldn't be like other comic book companies that would bring back characters ad nauseum, you know, five, two years after they died or just bring them right back with some weird plot hole they they said shredder's dead he won't be back we'll do something else next time well of course something like uh 12 months later they're back with the return of the shredder and i'm glad they did because it made for a fantastic comic arc uh, but before we get to that what did you guys think uh, of the last battle, of the art throughout. Um, what are your thoughts? Pat, why don't you start? I really like this second half of this story arc here, or this first story. Um, mm -hmm. Just uh, in the beginning, the artwork, again, is really awesome, all the action of the artwork. Mm -hmm. I like when Shredder is sitting on that top of the building. They keep him kind of in a shadow until mm -hmm. he's in his pouncing, uh, ready, you know, ready to attack mode. Um, you see that. And then I realized why he had the foot shoulders come because once he got in that stance, it's going to take him a little bit to kind of get out of that and <laughs> yeah. stretch out of that. Get his hip <laughs> back in socket. Yeah. Yeah. So he needed, you know, some distraction. <laughs> um, other than that, you know, the, the grit, the dirtiness, the, you know, the, the fighting, the scars and all that, the blood that they show, it's, it's not your turtle, you know, it's not your, your family-friendly turtles no. in this issue. No. But it's awesome. It's super awesome. Yeah, it really, really is. I'm a huge fan. Uh, Jared, what do you think? Yeah, I, I determined that it was not the family-friendly turtles once Leonardo ran Shredder through with the sword. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, yeah, okay. But I will say that overall, this whole issue, I was kind of impressed on how it mirrored that 1990 movie. The 1990 yes. movie is very family-friendly, but there's a lot of beats that they follow from this comic. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, the 1990 movie um, had... It's basically this book combined with um, the book with the Shredder's return and the Turtles going into exile and then the sort of the Turtles coming back triumphant. Um, it's sort of that story arc with all the other stories, sub-stories, and the intervening stories cut away. And I think it made for a really fantastic uh, story arc for a movie. And, man, I rewatched that movie a couple years ago, and I did not remember very nice feelings about those movies. But that first one, man, it I think it's because it draws so heavily from the original book. It's not e bad. No, it's not bad. I just wish there wasn't the Cowabunga pizza ridiculousness. But, um, yeah, it's really good, especially since one of my favorite Turtle characters uh, is in it. And, of course, that would be uh, Casey Jones, um, mm -hmm. who we get later, who's the hockey stick, hockey mask-wearing vigilante. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a strong... Uh, it, there's some strong stuff in that plot um, that, of course, they pulled right out of the book, uh, which is great. Pat, I did, also want to point oh, sorry, out. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, no, I don't want to give Chin, uh, Pat a chance to talk. 
Um, I also <laughs> want to point out that the line from the very beginning of the comic, something about these guys wearing stupid turtle costumes. Mm-hmm. They're not costumes. I want to say that was in the first episode of the cartoon series. If not, they used it somewhere along the way because I remember distinctly hearing that mm-hmm. on the cartoon series. And uh, I was like, oh, that's a neat direct grab from the first comic. So it was just it was funny because my hazy memory of the black and white comics was that they are nothing like, you know, the 90s movie or the 80s cartoon. Mm-hmm. But there's actually a lot of little seeds in there that are. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, they, that's all I have to say. They mine so much from the original books. But uh, it's funny how much comes in, and then it's also funny how much is completely different, is completely rewritten. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just it's fascinating um, that that's you know to look back at the book's origins um, and to see. I mean, things have changed so many times. I listened to a podcast about some of the most recent turtle cartoons that apparently went back to some of the original turtle cartoon canon, and it's like you're talking about alternate dimensions and. Um, you know, characters dying and being reborn, and it, there's just some weird stuff that goes on. Um, but yeah, it's it's such a cool IP. Um, and again, it comes came out mm-hmm. of um, the guys trying to make each other laugh one night um, because and it's gonna it's yeah. gonna be in league with something like Scooby Doo, which I think debuted in like '69, mm-hmm. and 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 has never gone away. Every generation of kids has had a version of Scooby Doo. The same thing is happening with Turtles. Every version of kids has gotten a version of Turtles. Yeah, and yeah, fantastic. you're right. Yeah, yeah and. I'm kind of glad they did. Uh, it's it's fantastic mm-hmm. to have something that started as a limited run of three thousand original issues turn into <laughs> what that was. I mean, you guys can tell me um, what that means, like numbers wise in the '80s to have three thousand issues of a first book. Um, that's incredibly low, isn't it? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> yeah. In the '80s, books were selling. 200 300,000 copies. Yeah. You know, for Marvel and DC the yeah, that's it's definitely a small run, definitely localized. Yeah. But I've talked a lot. I want to know what Pat has to say. Yes, Pat. What was the question? <laughs> well, we're kind of doing a wrap up and <laughs> yeah, we're gonna... thoughts and, you know, overall turtle <laughs> thoughts. I took us in a lot of different directions. Yeah, yeah so now I got lost. So, so who's your favorite turtle, Pat? <laughs> Well, Jerry, you know, I can't say Leonardo. We already said that. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I really like enjoy uh, it when they're in their trench coats and their fedora hats. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. I think that's cool. That's very much like the thing from Fantastic Four. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that, yeah, that is what that's from, isn't it? I'm pretty sure they, they that was. If a I nod. had to guess, yeah. Yeah. And that is in the original black and whites, um, although it doesn't come till later. I'm actually flipping through right now. Um, but yeah, that that was sort of one of those iconic things, wasn't it? That um, they would they would wear disguises uh, in public, which is kind of ridiculous. Did you also notice that the turtles in these books are way shorter than they're portrayed in every other media? I mean, if we look at the Michael Bay turtles, they're like six foot six, you know, monsters of muscle. Um, but these guys are like four foot five. Um, they're just mm-hmm. little, little guys. Um, yeah. T- sh- Splinter is supposedly like teenage. five feet tall and yeah. And th- they actually are, they're like 15. Um, 
which is funny considering that they're drinking beer and, you know, <laughs> got to be but the I, 80s. I, that's kind of explained to me sort of their spindly build. Yes. You know, they're not, not as muscular. Yeah. And it goes back to what Pat said. They're teenagers, so they didn't have that, that muscle that muscle mass, and that kind of made sense. But that, you know, changed over time. True, true. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing this actually put to a normal movie nowadays, but making it that kind of grittiness, you know, yeah. doing, doing what they did with daredevil, the, on the Netflix, mm-hmm. but mm. doing that in turtle style. Oh, that would man. be awesome. Or like, or like, yeah, like an anime would be cool. If they just did the hardcore and an anime. Hardcore style. anime. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yep, that would be awesome too. Uh, Pat, I went and looked, uh, in the first seven issues, they did not wear a trench coat, although they definitely wear them later on. I believe they wore them, uh, the first time they wore a trench coat, they actually had a beanie on, not a, uh, fedora, which is funny because, you know, those little woolly hats you pull down don't exactly cover your face. (laughs) But yeah, well, right on. Um, well, just to go back to something we were talking about a minute ago, um, the original book was printed by the two artists um, scrounging together their tax return and literally every dollar they could get their hands on, and they borrowed $1,000 um, from a relative to, to print that first 3,000 issues. Now, it sold out in the first 30 days, uh, and so they did a second run to pay back the relative because they actually didn't make enough money to, to pay that $1,000 back. Um, but one of the things that with the original runs of this book is because it was on such a, a shoestring budget, it was printed on incredibly thin and flimsy paper. Um, even for the time, it was like really low quality paper because they couldn't afford to do anything else. Um, and because of that, the original couple of uh, pressings of the book are uh, even rarer than their numbers would have you guess. They just the the books just have deteriorated to the point where. Um, unless they were properly cared for from pretty much the second they were bought, um, they just disintegrate. And so finding any of the original books is massively uh, rare. Um, but as starting from, I think, the second, third, fourth issues, once they started getting you know, the popularity behind them, they started getting the money, um, they fixed that problem. But it's just the first couple of issues in particular, super rare because of the really poor paper quality. Um, I also thought it was funny that um, the shredder was named because one night the, the guys had had dinner and they were doing the dishes together and uh, one of them held up a cheese grater on his hand and said, we could have a villain named the grater. Uh, and then um, that they were like, no, that's terrible. And it said, oh, what about the shredder? And so that is the origin story of the shredder, um, which I thought was, you know, it's kind of funny given that he is uh, possibly one of the more iconic uh, comic villains of all time, it was because people were doing the dishes and they held up a cheese grater. But yeah. Um, Now, I did want to come back to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness uh, role-playing game um, in which it gives you the rules to literally um, take any animal and mutate it and then... um, you could mutate it so it's it still looks like a regular animal, but it has um, a higher IQ or is able to have psychic abilities. Or you could have one that looks almost human, um, but has some you know slight 
animal um, characteristics, like almost like super dog hearing on a human, uh, what someone who looks like a human being. Um, or you could do something in between and you could have characters that look like um, the turtles, for example, or Splinter or um, uh, Usagi Jimbo, the, the rabbit samurai. Now, that does beg the question, gentlemen, and I think it is important uh, that we end this with a deep and meaningful question. If you could pick an animal that you would be, if you were to create a character in that game, what kind of warrior would you be and what kind of animal would you be? Um, so I'll let you uh, stew on that one for a while. I would like to say, while you're thinking about that, um, there were some adventures in the back of this book. And my favorite adventure, of course, involved the Terror Bears. And there's four of them. Um, Pain Bear, <laughs> uh, Pain Bear, Doom Bear, Nightmare Bear, and uh, Fear Bear. And they are little mm -hmm. bears. Uh, like, they look like ba bear cubs. Um, but, of course, 80s style, they have Care Bear-like emblems on their chest. Um, all Ooh. of which are giant skulls with then like a ghost popping out of one or uh, a mushroom cloud coming out of one or the screaming face coming out of one or um, uh, thorns coming out. But yeah, it's basically like Care Bears gone wrong. So yeah, some really cool, fun, uh, just some cool characters um, and uh, ideas that went into this book and then the following books. Um, they did have an additional adventures book um, that at the end you have to storm a you know the foot stronghold in Japan. And it, it said at the beginning of the adventure, um, this is incredibly difficult. Don't expect many of your characters to survive. And it was basically, you know, they get stuck in rooms where the traps, where the spikes come out of the ceiling and starts filling with water and your your characters have to get your way out. Again, this is not a, ch a kid's um, role-playing game. Uh, this is definitely for adults. And it's very funny that, um, you know, given what turtles become that this is its origins. Anyway, and then they went into post-apocalyptic after the bomb, um, which, you know, very 80s, but also very grim, um, where you are mutated animals because of nuclear radiation. Anyway, let's go back to the original question. Jared, what animal would you be and what kind of warrior would you be? I would be a uh, super stealthy, super fast cheetah type animal. Huh. Like I go. I, I like the cheetah speed. I've always liked the cheetah speed ever since I was a kid. So I'm sticking with that. Love it, Pat. What about you? Boy, that's a go with cheetah. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm. You know what? I'm gonna go plain because I would. If I could be it, I would want to be just like Yosagi Jimbo. I'd want to be a rabbit with some mm -hmm. nice swords like that and just. Yeah. Exactly. Have some some smooth ninja skills. Smooth yeah. up ninja. Smooth up ninja. Nice. I I'm <laughs> I'm fighting the urge to be a narwhal pirate or uh, Viking or something something silly like that. Anyway, on that note, um I I would like to point out one last thing when talking about this role-playing game. Um this role-playing game at its height was kind of a big deal in the gaming industry uh for its time. It was put out by Palladium. 
And uh, it was sort of one of the big predecessor games before they came out with their sort of penultimate game at the time, which was Rifts. Um, now, as part of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Other Strangeness brand, of course, there were a ton of expansions, but they also had miniatures, um, which are the ones I love to paint now. Um, but what's interesting is those were literally the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle toys of all time were oh. the little pewter 28 mil, um, yeah, 156 models. Um, and you can find them online now, but they are ungodly expensive. Um, but yeah, that, that is how you can, that is how the, you, or you could play with turtles first. Uh, and those wanting to play with turtles these days, um, if you do go to... Um, the Crooked Dice website, if you are familiar with the game 7TV, which I'm a big fan of, um, one of the expansions that you can get for 7TV is, um, which is a game system that allows you to play any video, uh, sorry, any um, television show, cartoon, movie. So you can have the cast from Flash Gordon um, fighting against Ming the Merciless. Um, and his minions, or you can have Skeletor and his henchmen battling, um, you know, Megatron and some Cobra henchmen, or you could have James Bond versus, I mean, you name it. it it's a wonderful game for taking something that is a trope, um, something that, you know, you might enjoy, have watched or read at some point, and then putting it on the tabletop. They have official rules for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, and I wanted to play that with good friend of the show, Dave Monroe, a while back. And so I went out and found, and Heroclix did make at one point, um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle clicks. Now, they are pre-painted, mm -hmm. and they are fairly... Mm -hmm. And it's not the best paint job, um, once I got the models in the mail. But um, apparently, you can scrub them clean um, or just over-paint and repaint them. And they are actually really nicely detailed models. Um, the turtles themselves, Casey Jones... Um, are great models. If you want the Foot Clan, um, if you are looking for the Foot Ninjas themselves and you want them to look like the TV series, the Click versions are perfect. Um, Shredder, likewise, perfect. Um, but if you want them to look like the original Eastman Laird, Shredder, and Foot Ninjas, uh, Crooked Dice actually make the Shredder um, as a quote-unquote ninja with like weird weapons. And their ninja models have alternate heads that you can put on them that turn them into the original Foot Clan. So if you are looking to put this on the tabletop, not only do Crooked Dice make the rules, they, they make all of the bad guy models that you could want. Um, you just need to find yourself some turtles, which, of course, are made uh, by Heroclix and Casey Jones. And if you have Casey Jones and the four turtles and Splinter, um, that is an entire crew for the game. And you can get all those on eBay for very cheap. Um, and that includes shipping to Australia. So if you're looking to put it on the tabletop, gang, that's how you do it. Um, gents, uh, any comments about any of that? Well, I kind of want to play now. Fun. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like, oh, that'd be kind of fun. Be, be kind of fun to do for a doing it live stream, which doing we do live every stream. month. Mm -hmm. Second yeah. Sunday, 3.30 Central. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I will ask. I didn't know if that was my cue if I was supposed to jump in. I just did it. Well, we'll do that in just a second. Um, I do love how the rules have it that the 
the shredder allows foot ninjas to come back again and again. And the foot ninjas are just the worst kind of plebs in the game. And the turtles are a little overpowered. But the two sides were intentionally built to fight each other. So you get the shredder in a wall of foot soldiers. But as long as the shredder's there, you can recycle the foot as you, you know, either throw them off of building tops or, you know, defeat them. More arrive and more arrive. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Reminds me of uh, playing D&D and you have the the undead where they can Mm -hmm. come back to life without. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's just that endless wave of uh, foot ninjas. And it's nice, though, because it means that one player isn't, you know, doesn't have literally 50 models versus five on the other side. You know, it's like 10 versus five. But then as their models defeated, more arrive. So it, it keeps the game from getting bogged down. And yet you still get the feel of the endless horde, which is a really nice mechanic. I'm, I'm really glad they did that. But gentlemen, I think uh, we should talk about some of the shows that you are on. Now, I've been following you for a very long time on uh, on Her Majesty's uh, Secret Podcast. You guys do the Rookie Agent show uh, in which Jared and his brother Jason talk Delvin and Pat through the James Bond series. You guys watch a movie and then rate and talk about each one. Um, you guys are most of the way through the series now. You're, I'm, I'm guessing you will have recorded up through Brosnan. We've recorded up through the first Craig. We've recorded Casino already, but you know, we're a couple ahead before release. So Mm -hmm. that's right. You don't have to lie about Craig. You don't have to lie, Craig. Craig. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. So, uh, you guys are going to run out of content soon. What are you guys going to do next? Oh, it's a surprise. <laughs> I was hoping. I, You guys said you had something up your sleeve on your show, and I thought I'd call you out and say, hey. Yeah, mm. we do. We got plans. We got plans. Good, good. Well, I hope they the involve. Rookies aren't rookies no more. I hope they uh, do involve uh, Never Say Never Again at some point, because I'd love to hear your thoughts on that movie again. It's good. It'll happen. That'll happen. Yep, yep. Good, good. Right on. Well, besides that show, which is actually weirdly one of the only shows you guys are on that are not on your network, um, where would you guys like to start? Because you guys have just started a new G.I. Joe podcast that I'm a huge fan of. Um, Pat or Jared, mm-hmm. go ahead. Tell us tell us about Pat, where we can find think, you. Pat. All right. Well, we can kind of do this back and forth, Jared. Um, okay. Let's say I'll start with the. You can find us at www.longboxcrusade.com. Mm-hmm. You can find us on the Twitter at Longbox Crusade, on the Facebook at Longbox Crusade, uh, Instagram at Longbox Crusade. So just kind of search out Longbox Crusade and you'll get to us somewhere. But for the shows that we do, we have originally started with Longbox Crusade, where it's just me kind of going through my comic book collection. Uh, we do a random year is drawn. And then we kind of talk about what year and month that comic is mm-hmm. that I have in my long box. We go through the ads and we talk about movies and songs and, and all that. And yeah. have some lot, a lot of fun at the time for that one. And then we have Crusader Chronicles, which is actually going it through chronologically and uh, with that. And we feature two comics from that collection. And then we'll have more and more going off Uh Another one, uh, spinoff soon to be, will be called Pat's Polis, where I talked with about the other comics in the my collection mm-hmm. with other guests. Um, and we're having lots of fun there. Right now, we're in 1978, so yeah. we're getting to, it's always Spider-Man and 
Green whatever Goblin. else the Crusader mm-hmm. Club chooses. Yeah. Um, Jared, what other ones do we do? Not really sure, Pat. Okay. All right, I am sure. We do action film face-off. My brother and I pit two randomly selected action films against one another. We do mm-hmm. G.I. Joe Chronicles, which he mentioned. Uh, Delvin Host Transformers Chronicles. And, of course, did you say Saturday Matinee Theater already, Pat? I couldn't remember. I, I did not, but we go ahead. No, you got it. Oh, okay. Well, we do a, one called Saturday Matinee Theater, where we are going through the 1954 Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. black and white series, TV series, along with the Flash Gordon series as well, too, the early Flash Gordon series. So we're having a lot of fun with that, and we'll be kind of just rotating between those two until one of them ends, and then we'll pick up uh, another show on the show. Nice. We have a lot of fun with that. And you guys haven't actually talked about the G.I. Joe show yet. <laughs> I mentioned it quickly, yes. G.I. Joe Chronicles, where we're covering the Devil's Do Run. That's right. The the um, post-9-11 run, if you will. If you listen to our first episode, you'll mm-hmm. know that the issue one came out on uh, September 12th of 2001. So it's really, it's quite literally the next day, post 9-11 GI Joe and man, we are loving it. Yeah. yeah it's, definitely. it's, it's, uh, that's a brand new world for me because I, I was such a Marvel fan that I, and I've read some of the newest books, which are IDW, but I never read the devil's do books. And so to hear you guys talk through that, especially since you're bringing it up in the context of post 9-11, it really does make that a very fascinating show to listen to. Well, we appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, thanks for letting us spread the word. No worries, man. Uh, it is always a pleasure having you guys on. I know it was uh, not one that you necessarily had a ton of uh, prior knowledge on, Jared, especially since you just picked <laughs> up the issue a few minutes ago. Uh <laughs> But I I had read it before, but it had been about ten or fifteen years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a quite a while since I've read this as well, too. But now I'm gonna have to probably dig these things out yeah. and read them again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, such a good original run. Um now Pat, you and I are both reading, I think, from the same book, the ultimate collection. Is that right? No, I have the I have the I have a trade paperback okay. from First Graphics. Oh, right on. Okay, that I got in a long time ago from Walden Books. Mm-hmm. So they're like the trade paperbacks. Nice is what I'm. I have the about. original issue one. I found at the yard sale for a quarter. Are you serious? Cool. That's not. I made that up. Just okay, now. I was about to say. Because <laughs> oh, you find a lot of stuff at yard sales. <laughs> I've been notified stuff, but I just wanted to be an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> I was about to, my heart stopped on that one. I went, what? Um, I'm, I'm, I am reading from the IDW Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Ultimate Collection, um, which is a really oh, cool, cool. Uh, reprint of the books. I'm sure, Pat, it's very similar to what you're reading, um, but it's uh, hardbacked, and it's it's just a nice tabletop book. Oh, um, it's like that Joe one I've got. They did yes. the same thing with G.I. Joe. Yeah, I don't yeah. have the Joe one, sadly. I have all the soft uh, softbacks for that, but I have the first four Ultimate Turtle books, uh, and yeah, it there's some... There's some really great stuff in there. Um, but yeah, good mine stuff. Goes, mine was printed, uh, it, it's actually, I think it's the fifth printing of it from 1989 is what I'm reading it in. Nice. What year was that, Pat? What is that? What year? 1989. 1989. A number. Yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> Another Thank summer. You. Sound of a funky drama. Thank you. <laughs> Ah, that's why you guys come on the show. It's because you have excellent <laughs> taste so in music. Because we're stupid. Uh, 
Yes. <laughs> Stupid crazy. Stupid fresh. How did I invite you guys on the show? Fresh. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Well, guys, thank you very much uh, for coming on. Uh, it is literally always a pleasure to have you, um, and it always thank is you. great to talk uh, aspects of pop culture, uh, especially since I'm such big fans of y'all's work. Thank you. Ah, we thank love you it. For having... Yeah. I really enjoy watching you do all your miniatures. I'm like, man, I wish I could do that and just have I that steady hand. I only stay friends with Bradford in the hopes that he'll make me some Joe miniatures someday. Well, that's what I'm hoping for. And out yet. Well, sadly, the last six months, my printer's been out of uh, the guy who does all my 3D print stuff is actually um, his printer's been down. So I have not been able to order any 3D prints of anything uh, for six months. And I'm hoping that uh, by Halloween, that is going to change. Um, he's got new, a new printer coming. Um, apparently, it's very expensive to repair because he, he does have an incredibly expensive, very nice resin printer. Um, that does very large prints. And a lot of the G.I. Joe vehicles that I order from him, of course, require that. So uh, I, I I am actually, I was planning to, um, spoilers, uh, paint a little something for you guys. I'm just hoping that I can get it in time to turn it around for Christmas. Um, although oh. at this point, it, it may be a little bit after that. Um, because A, I'm a slow painter, but more to the point B, it's going to take a long time for me to get them because I order them from the States and live in Australia and then we need to get them back. So there will be a little sum sum coming for each and every member Aww. of the Longbox Crusade because, as I said, I am a big fan. So, oh, uh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. We'll see who gets the Sky Striker. <laughs> I know who's not going to get one. <laughs> Make sure he gets you know, the ramp. I... Nothing but the ramp. I could use a Veritech or something like that too, you know, Robotech. Mm. I'm a Robotech fan. Look so. at you! You're already campaigning for stuff. <sighs> yeah, well, you know. Uh, now, Pat, <laughs> anybody listen? Did you know that they um they have actually just uh, and this this is actually a game news, so I will say it on the podcast. Uh, for those of you who've been following my BattleTech stuff, um, there mm -hmm. is so uh, there's been the giant legal battle between the people who own the Macross IP in the United States, Harmony Gold, um, and um, the the people who do BattleTech, um, and it seems to go back and forth about when usually off rather than on about if they're able to use some of that IP for their uh, mechs. Uh, but there is uh, a not talking about Macross Tactics, which of course um, was not everyone's favorite uh, release and it was rolled out badly from the Kickstarter and the models. Not the best quality um, and I've been putting some together recently and I can tell you they are a pain to put together. Um, but there is a new set of Macross miniatures. There's only a few out. Um, and I th or there are only a few on pre-order, uh, but there is a Veritech pad. Uh, it's mm -hmm. I believe it's um, uh, I'm not sure exactly how tall it is. Maybe two to three inches tall. That uh, I might be able to source faster than a 3D print uh, and paint up. So uh, it might be a little something you can put on your computer monitor. Uh, but I do need to find a way to get some A for me and also B for you. Uh, but yeah, those are now out. Um, if you want information on that, I do have it on my page, um, the fast, uh, the cast dice Facebook page. If you can't find it, uh, please message the page and ask, and I can send you a link directly. Um, that said, uh, I'm also very excited because, uh, coming out, uh, very soon, 
uh, Watsi Wizards of the Coast are going to be putting out unpainted, similarly sized and scaled transformer models, and they've announced four of them unpainted, so they're not going to have the heavy paints of uh, clicks. There's Bumblebee, uh, Optimus Prime, Starscream, and Megatron. So I am also looking forward to getting my grubby paws on those. Uh, mm-hmm. And hashtag uh, Delvin might uh, <clears throat> see one of those. Anyway, we'll see how we end up. Um, but yeah, it just means that uh, poor Jason in his Sky Striker situation. You know, we'll just have to see. Uh, <laughs> see, will remain unresolved. <laughs> <sighs> well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Um, as always. Um, when we do the off gaming topic uh, episodes, I, I get very, very good mixed feedback. Some people love it when I do it. Some people don't. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. If you're still listening, I hope you've enjoyed it and, uh, and you aren't some, you know, tied to a chair and forced to listen to this. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> on that note, if you have any feedback, uh, be it positive or negative, you can always uh, find us on Facebook. If you just type in C-A-S-T-D-I-C-E, you will find the page and uh, you can just uh, message us and say, hey. I like this. I didn't like this um, because it is just me, and I am talking with a variety of guests, and each and every week it's a different guest. Um, it is a, a weirdly solitary existence sometimes. So um, having people actually give feedback about what they do like and don't like actually helps quite a lot. And I don't lightly say I would love to hear from you, and I would love your feedback. Um, quite a few of you have been watching um, the new video series that has gone up on YouTube. Um, I've started gameplay videos. I know I said I'd start with commentary and army showcases. Well, it turns out I am starting with game videos now instead, um, which is what I said I'd work up to. It is a huge learning curve, and um, I am learning a lot. They are not perfect, um, but if you could give us feedback about those as well, I would love them. Uh, I would love to hear from you, I should say. But as our good friend Casey says, when you are playing the games that we know and love, I hope your dice roll hot. I hope your beverages are cold. But more than that, when you are playing the games that we love, I hope you are having fun. This is Cast Ice saying good night. Bye. Roll them all. Roll them all. Rolling, rolling, rolling. Get those doggies rolling, rolling, rolling. Another day rise in Paraguayan sun The food cracks open, another Heineken He's all
friends are gone And they track my home 